0: Welcome to the Question Community Broadcast. The Question is a new disruptive community that provides a gathering place for those who wonder about our complex selves, our complex world, our complex universe. We are a non-religious and inclusive community that explores the many questions surrounding truth in order to encourage you on the important journey to find your own answers. The Question community gathers every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary, starting at 7. Information on the community is available at our website, www.thequestion.ca. You can also join the community online at our Facebook page, which is The Question, and on Twitter, at TQCom, with two M's. You're now going to hear some highlights from our community gathering where the question is asked through original arts and music as well as thought-provoking presentations. This is Frederick Tomagi.
1: Now, the story of the star is one of the most significant in the whole Bible, not just as an extraordinary standalone mythic phenomenon, which it is, but also as a trigger event for the literal birth of a whole spiritual movement that now influences over 2 billion people worldwide. Now without predispositions or prejudice, archaeoastronomers have engaged the story of the star based on their own revised definition of myth. As a valid ancient perspective, as a scientific and historical backdrop, and as an invitation to explore. Now we'll follow along with their investigation for a while. It's a little bit like a forensic CSI investigation, I think, although, I'm saying that without ever actually having to CSI. Does anyone watch CSI? Okay. <laughs> just feels cooler being a detective, doesn't it? Okay. Now, where everyone must start, including our archaeoastronomers, is the single account of this amazing star in the Bible itself. Okay, from Matthew. hope you can read this and just follow along. From Matthew 2, 2-10. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem. Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I need to go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed." This is the one account of this in the Bible. So, the ancient crime scene testimony from the Bible focuses on three key statements. From the time of King Herod, Magi from the East, and we have seen his star in the East when it rose. During the time of King Herod refers to the reign of Herod the Great in the Roman province of Judea from approximately 74 BC to 4 BC. I need to say right away that the word approximately is often necessary when ancient time is discussed. A significant portion of ancient history is not expressed as a precise time measurement, but very often is expressed as a descriptive time narrative. An example of this would be something like um, in the fifth year of Emperor David, when Queen Carla ruled over her domain. Okay. For this reason, significant time discrepancies are possible, uh, even though it often appears that historians are implying hard dates for things. They're really not. I learned that calculating ancient time is as much art as it is science. What's pretty interesting is that this inability to be completely precise about dates is actually a weird kind of benefit in balancing the modern and the ancient perspectives of stories from antiquity. You'll see this as we progress further in the investigation. Herod the Great was a real person. He's not only prominently described in the Bible but also in separate histories written by the Roman historian Josephus and the Greek scholar Nicholas of Damascus, who was actually Herod's private secretary as well as a tutor to the children of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. I thought that was pretty interesting, pretty interesting guy. For any Bible readers, A tragic part of the Christmas story is Herod's infamous order to murder all children under two years old in the area of Bethlehem. This is called the murder of the innocents. This order is a horrifying clue to his character, but allow me to share how some historians have characterized Herod's many qualities as a ruler. He's described as a madman who murdered his own family and a great many innocent people. He's described as an evil genius of the Judean nation. He was described as being prepared to commit any crime in order to gratify his unbounded ambition. And he was also one of the greatest builders in Jewish history. Herod was not originally a Jew, but he converted uh, to Judaism just to gain the political favor of the local Jewish nobility. He married the daughter of a prominent Jewish family, but first he had to banish his current wife and young son. He was also a paranoid ruler who was afraid of rebellion, so he sought to stifle protests against him and employed a kind of secret police to identify and remove protesters from public gatherings. In addition to ordering the murder of young children in Bethlehem, Herod also ordered the murder of several members of his own family, including the Jewish wife that he married after banishing his first wife. As one of the most ambitious builders in Jewish history, Herod oversaw such epic construction process, uh, projects as the Second Great Temple of Jerusalem, the massive seaport of Caesarea, and the legendary mountaintop fortress of Masada. He was, without a doubt, the epitome of the shameless opportunist, a narcissistic demagogue with a pathological appetite for power. Does he remind <laughs> you of anyone? I thought this was actually kind of ironic. Anyway, Herod was, Herod was a real person that ruled during the time of the star. Now, the identity of the Magi from the East has become a very popular, very misunderstood, and therefore very mythical component of the story of the star. Some of you may not have heard the term Magi before, because most of us are more familiar with the version of the story describing wise men or kings, right? following the star from their home in the east. It's important to know that all the original ancient manuscripts all read Magi. Now, because the identity, of the identity of the Magi has become such a popular misunderstanding, depictions of their visit, like these, has fueled a lot of the modern skepticism about the entire story of the star. The skepticism, I think, is mainly because of the obvious religious imagery of three mythical, perhaps wise men, perhaps kings, somehow following an abnormally bright star over some great distance, and then witnessing the star as it stops and hovers, like a spotlight, over the exact location of the nativity. So as a consequence of our natural skepticism, the story of the star often just grinds to a halt when we try to reconcile with this popular myth of the magi. But sentimental Christmas carols and cards aside, just like Herod the Great, the magi were real people too. Magi is a really ancient word stemming back from our English version to the Latin, magus, to the Greek, magos, to the ancient Persian word, magush, all roughly meaning the same thing, learned magician. For almost 600 years, preceding the time of Herod the Great, the Magi were an elite class of priests and astrologers who sat atop the powerful state religion of the Persian Empire called Zoroastrianism. And that's just a a picture of Zoroaster, the founder. Now, this important religion was founded by Zoroaster somewhere around the 6th century BC. Zoroastrianism has significant connections to Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Really interesting connections. Some core concepts of Zoroastrianism that are shared with these other world religions are the concepts of monotheism, eternal truth, eternal order, free will, and yes, messianic prophecy. Members of the Magi class were held in high regard and practiced a form of astrology that could be better described as the applied astronomy of their day. Their temples were also ancient observatories from which they watched and charted the movement of celestial objects and constellations. Charting the heavens was an essential part of their important spiritual and prophetic role in the Persian empire. In addition to ancient Persian historical references, Evidence of Magi influence and Magi travels can be found in Greek, Roman, and even Chinese historical texts. The important point is that Magi were respected as learned astronomer priests throughout the ancient world, hundreds of years before the story of the star was even written. Now, what about the star itself? You'll recall that in the Bible, the said to Herod that we have seen his star in the east when it rose. Now, there's been a ton of archaeoastronomy discussion on whether or not this reference to a star is in fact a reference to an actual star. don't have time to share all the details of this extensive and really interesting discussion, but I can say there are three main theories. First theory is that the star was a comet, possibly Halley's comet, which appeared in 12 BC, but Halley's comet appears every 75 years, so it's really not that unique. Second theory is that the star was a nova or supernova event. The third theory is that the star was a rare conjunction of planets. Now the comet theory and the nova supernova theory of the star each have their supporters in the scientific community, but it is the planetary conjunction theory that inspires the most compelling archaeoastronomy story about the star. Just like the myths of the oracle and the cyclops, the myth of the star is truly a story of surreal imagination with real human experience embedded within. Now the real human experience part of this new science story revolves around the verified real-world existence of Herod the Great and the Magi, which we've just covered, right? As an ancient backdrop to the story of the star itself. So if we have confirmed that these particular real humans actually participated in the story, here are a couple of questions. Now what did these really real human participants really see? And having seen whatever it was, why would it prompt a difficult wilderness journey perhaps a thousand miles, requiring at least three to four months.
0: This is Joel Pearson.
2: Okay, so this song, uh, I wrote it at the same time as I wrote the last one. Um, so really, when things are going really well for me, I have a hard time writing. <laughs> I'm sure writers have, you know what I mean. Uh, It's hard to find inspiration from positive things. That's why you see a lot of songs are written about more negative aspects. Um, And it's too bad because there's a lot of really positive things to write about that are better than the negative things, but the negatives of... yeah. Yes. (laughs) So, you know what I mean. Uh, So... I don't have a lot of positive songs, which is not good. Um, But this one I wrote about at the same time, kind of tapping in to another time in my life, too, where, um, you know... You know, I'm, I know I'm still pretty young, I'm 25 but I've got a lot of life experience I've got a two year old another one on the way already been married for five years um and then this is uh, about when I, I just got out of high school and um I was 18 and a lot of my friends kind of ended up kind of stabbing me in the back so to speak and um uh, you know so this is about me finding my way with that um and uh really finding who I am um and really kind of grasping, you know, f- getting really good hold of the positive energy in life. And that's why this song, it sounds really negative, but the end of it is extremely positive. Um, and it just brings you right back around to feeling uplifted. It's kind of how I was. It's kind of highlighted that, that, that time in my life. And you'll hear it, the outro of the song. Um, it's, it ends in a very positive light. Um, I'm a firm believer that what happens to us in life positive or negative, they form who we are. And if you don't have these experiences, you wouldn't be the same person at the end of the day. Um, so looking at the negative and the positive, and even with the negative saying, you know what, thank you for that experience. Um, it's a good thing to be able to do. I have trouble doing that most of the time. <laughs> you know. So taking the positive and the negative, I find, for me, really helps understand, or try to understand. Because as you can see by the song, I always try to understand, but usually, I, It makes a completely different understanding a couple years later. But uh, anyway, this one's called Light In Me. And now with the proper tuning, I can play you the song. (laughs)
3: And I fell so fast, descended into darkness, and oh, how I went. I these streets, are so tight, so beat, I wondered how I'd make it through. So. Like one thousand glowing flames
1: that today, advanced computers and telescopes allow astronomers to reconstruct the historical position and movement of objects in the universe. One spectacular application of this technology is through the use of the famous Zeiss planetarium projector. Has anyone ever seen a Zeiss projector? Yeah, they're, they're just amazing pieces of equipment. Ironically, this awesome technical capability is often utilized at Christmas concerts and planetarium events where The calculated positions of planets, stars and constellations are reconstructed as they might have been on the night of December 24th, 1 BC. It's a beautiful and mythical backdrop to the traditional Christmas story for people who believe or even people who don't believe. For archaeoastronomers, the practice of sky and space simulation is an essential window that enables us to see what our ancestors saw in the heavens. Here is what their latest models are telling us, just a heads up. This will be really easy to understand. (laughs) Okay, archaeoastronomers have theorized that between May and December in the approximate year 7 BC, an extremely rare triple conjunction of giant planets, Jupiter and Saturn, occurred in the constellation of Pisces. This rare triple conjunction was thought to have occurred with Jupiter and Saturn in maximal opposition to the Sun. In addition, the two giant planets may have reached an even more rare positional state called occultation, sometime during the triple-conjunction cycle. A normal conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn is called a Great Conjunction because Jupiter and Saturn are the Solar System's largest planets. Great conjunctions occur approximately every 20 years. It's pretty routine, actually. The very unique triple-conjunction conditions of 7 BC that i just described, really briefly, is called a Greatest Conjunction. That's a real astronomical term, by the way. Greatest conjunctions are thought to occur approximately every 7,000 years. Not so routine, right? Now, there's really no way to completely verify this since we have no definitive astronomical data from 7,000 BC, at least not that we know of. Uh, and we have not yet recorded the astronomical events that will occur 5,000 years into the future. See, I told you this would be really to understand, right? Everyone understand that? Okay, Okay, I'll descend, sorry. I sense now that I have your complete and somewhat confused attention about what must sound like a conversation from some kind of archaeoastronomy nerd fest. But if you'll hang in with me, I guarantee that by joining the nerd fest, you will understand what might have happened in 7 BC uh, and what it would be like to look through the window between science and myth in a more powerful telescope. Here's that same theory translated from nerd-speak to normal. We're the normal ones in that sense, I think. Now to help us out, I'm going to pray that this works because it didn't work last week. Tell us that I was able to find a simple animation of this greatest conjunction event uh, on YouTube and here it is. You can watch it while I'm describing it. In the approximate year 7 BC, the orbits of Jupiter and Saturn brought them into very close proximity to one another in the constellation of Pisces. Their opposition relative to the Sun, or their position relative to the Sun, which is their opposition, provided the optimum angle for the maximum reflection of sunlight back to the Earth. From May to December of that year, the two planets passed each other three times, which is a triple conjunction. During summer, even all of these passes, when viewed from the Earth, the planets appeared to merge to occupy virtually the same visual space this is called occultation. Okay? An eclipse is an occultation. Occultation effectively combines the reflected light intensity of the two planets as if they were one. Okay? This very specific, extremely rare type of planetary conjunction has only occurred once in all of the recorded history that we currently have and will occur again theoretically approximately 5,000 years from now. Is that a little easier to understand? Okay. these are actual photographs of smaller, close conjunctions of planets. In this case, it's Jupiter and Venus. Some of them were actually taken last year. I'm showing you these so that you might imagine how a much larger, greatest conjunction might have looked to the Magi in 7 BC. In their time, they had no way of knowing that this phenomenon was not some kind of extraordinary star. I mean, how could they really know? I can almost hear you thinking this. Okay, so I get that Herod the Great and the Magi were real folks. And I can totally relate to the astronomical simulation of this really extraordinary, but explainable conjunction of giant planets. I can also understand how this completely unique conjunction could have been interpreted by the ancients as a once in a lifetime extraordinary star. And if this star was continuously visible from May to December, moving from Eastern horizon to Western horizon, it could explain how the Magi followed it all the way from Persia to Judea. Okay? But, you say, but why did they decide to leave their observatory and follow the star in the first place? I mean it could have been really amazing just watching, right? Why did they decide to leave? And how did they know that the destination was Judea and not some other location in the ancient world? Remember, The Magi were familiar with the entire ancient world, so why Judea? These questions point to a gap in the chain of evidence, don't they? Well, this is the question community, and in this community, questions are good. So, archaeoastronomers think this about the why and how of the Magi's reaction to the greatest conjunction. You'll remember that this once-in-a-recorded history planetary event took place in the constellation of Pisces. What I didn't mention was that for centuries previous to this, the ancient Persians had closely associated the constellation of Pisces with the Jewish people. Why do you ask? Well, around 500 BC, the Jews were coming to the end of a long period of exile and captivity in Persia. A key event at that time was a significant Jewish rebellion against a murderous rogue faction in the Persian nobility. This rebellion was eventually viewed by both Persians and the Jews as a kind of uh, liberation and unity event. The Jews celebrate the rebellion to this very day in their very important feast of Purim. The nation of Israel, by the way, views this ancient rebellion as an eternal validation of their right to self-defense. That's one of the reasons why they're so aggressive in defending their country. It's because of this, it's because of Purim. Oh, and you probably know already that the Israelis are no longer friends with the Persians. Anyway, this rebellion took place in the Jewish lunar month of Adar, which roughly corresponds to February and March, which corresponds to the astrological sign Pisces. So the Magi, as elite astrologers, likely interpreted this greatest conjunction of Jupiter planet of kings, with Saturn, which was the planet of command and authority, in the constellation of Pisces, as an unmistakable celestial pronouncement of an extraordinary king about to emerge in the land of the Jews. To them, it might have been really, really logical. And so that's how they knew, and that's why they followed all the way to Judea. I should also mention that apart from the Bible account of the Magi journey, the Roman historian Josephus separately makes reference to a Magi visit, visit to Herod's court in the approximate year 10 BC. Now that's pretty close to the approximate year 7 BC, isn't it? Now this is the uncertainty of ancient time at work. According to some historians, this is another example, Herod the Great was supposed to have died In the approximate year 4 BC. Now you may have already realized that this means he died four years before he is described as being not dead or undead when the Bible says the royal baby was born which was 1 BC. So for good or for bad there's always lots of strong circumstantial evidence for the inexactitude of ancient time. But you'll remember that I said this fluidity of ancient time is a kind of weird benefit to balancing the modern and the ancient. This time fluidity forces all archaeo-scientists to have their own form of the question community, because ancient time will always be a kind of question in itself, and it will always be debated. It can never be confirmed. This inherent difficulty with time certainty also forces us to balance our modern rigidity with ancient perspective. The requirement for balance also opens up the choice for us to be either judges or thinkers. One last thing. We have followed this now not-so-mythical question all the way from a dance of giant planets in the constellation Pisces, to a temple observatory in ancient Persia, to a demagogue's palace in Jerusalem. But should we be reminded of how the Magi finally ended up in the tiny village of Bethlehem, a village of perhaps three to 500 people, according to historians, really small place. Well, Matthew says that Herod actually told them to go to Bethlehem because that's what his own sacred literature told him. But if you don't wish to depend on the Bible explanation, conventional historians are in general agreement that the Persian Empire had extensive exposure to the same sacred literature during the Jewish captivity that I mentioned earlier. The Magi were scholars as well as astrologers. So, Herod probably didn't have to tell them their final destination anyway, right? Either way, the choice of Bethlehem is perhaps the least controversial part of a controversial story. Bible-speak notwithstanding, the real-life Magi didn't require the star to actually stop over the place where the baby lay. Okay? They simply had to accept directions to a very small town and then look for the right newborn baby. I'll stop right here because it's decidedly not the mission of our community to comment on what the magi may or may not have found in Bethlehem. It's taken me almost 30 minutes to just provoke the question of whether or not they were even there in the first place. And I guess I'm hoping that I did provoke you just a little. That's because I think it is our mission to open the window between science and myth to enable fresh air to freely circulate an alternative light to be freely exchanged. The fresh air jolts us to be less sure of what we thought we knew. The alternative light prompts us to be more sure of our need to seek what we don't know. Now, I'll also confess that I might have misled you a bit by invoking the CSI metaphor at the beginning of the presentation. This is because the chain of evidence that I've shared tonight, both circumstantial and physical, can only reconstruct the the crime scene and place the suspects there, but there's no way to definitively solve the crime itself. And because nothing fails like failure, allow me to further confess that I actually had no desire to solve the crime anyway. Myths just don't have that kind of closure, do they? And science only turns a myth into a mystery with possible closure, but that possible closure is only available to an explorer. From last month's presentation, you may recall that I said, to engage a myth is to embrace a mystery. With the illumination of new science, the mythical stories of the oracle, the cyclops, and the star are transformed into fresh mysteries that are bursting with ancient perspective, factual provocation, and possible truth. Myths are imprisoned by impossibility. Mysteries, on the other hand, are set free by possibility. And truth is only discovered through freedom. So allow me to leave you with a truth challenge of sorts from one of Mystery's great freedom fighters. Not an archaeoastronomer, but just a humble detective. When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. I love Sherlock Holmes. This community can only question the impossible. But it is the detective searching for the truth who can eliminate the impossible. Put another way, if we too easily accept the impossible, we'll never eliminate it. And I'm thinking that none of you would be here tonight if you weren't secretly detectives yourselves. Detectives inspired to pursue a mystery and perhaps discover a truth. The very second you ask the first question, as Sherlock Holmes would say, the game is afoot. Thank you very much for being so patient tonight.
0: Thank you for listening. If you're interested in joining the Question community, we meet every third Sunday evening at Redbush Tea and Coffee Company in the Kensington neighborhood of Calgary, starting at 7. You can participate in the online discussion on our Facebook page, which is The Question, or on Twitter at TQCOM. That's at T-Q-C-O-M-M. Our website is www.thequestion.ca. Thanks again for listening, and remember that our answers are only possible because of our questions.